Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions. CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. Welcome to Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK. Uh, you'll see that... Uh, I have no friends today. Uh, Jonah Bronstein and Matthew Fairburn, both on assignment. And so I am flying solo today with guest Josh Mankiewicz, who has been a correspondent for Dateline for 26 years. And we're going to get into that uh, based on uh, the research I've done on his background. He didn't think he'd be doing this, uh, at least not telling true crime stories uh, for this long. Uh, but <laughs> Josh, thanks for joining me. I've been looking forward to this. Thank you very much. Um, I, I guess for the sake of background uh, and uh, for the audience who may not know this background uh, and for my first couple of questions regarding whether or not storytelling uh, is a gene uh, that is passed on from generation to generation, uh, a little bit about Josh's uh, family background. He's the grandson of Herman Mankiewicz, who was the screenwriter for Citizen Kane, uh, had produced uh, some movies for the Marx Brothers, had an uncredited but very significant uh, role in The Wizard of Oz, um, wrote The Pride of the Yankees about Lou Gehrig, The Spirit of St. Louis, uh, an incredible career, Oscar-winning screenwriter, um, and the subject of the recent Netflix movie, Mank. I guess before we get started, you know, in my research, Josh, I didn't really see you give any thought, at least it's not out there very easy to find, uh, your, your feelings on watching Mank and, um, and, and what, you, what your takeaway was. Well, first of all, let me say at the top here, my family doesn't have anything to do with that movie. We were in no way involved in, in writing it, creating it, giving it the go-ahead, anything like that. That said, everybody in my family, I think, is delighted about it because it's great to see this sort of retelling of Herman's life, which I think is, you know, generally accurate. I mean, it's not a documentary, but it certainly reflects the person that we've all heard about all our lives. You know, I didn't know him. He was gone before I got here. Uh, he only he lived to, I don't know, what, 55, 56, something like that. And he was he was dead a couple of years before I arrived. But the person that emerges from the film is certainly the person that I heard about all my life. Really smart, really funny, really a nice guy, really gifted, really hated himself, really drunk, really his own worst enemy, really self-destructive, realized, uh, didn't seem, was the only person who didn't seem to realize that he was a good guy that everybody loved. He didn't like himself. He thought of himself as a big sellout for having left journalism in New York and come out to Hollywood to write movies and make a lot of money. He saw that as cheapening himself. Uh, you know, um, today, you know, there, there, there would be 
you know, if you're Hollywood's highest paid screenwriter, which he certainly was for a while, I mean, I think most people would think of themselves as some giant success and certainly everybody else would too. But he didn't see himself that way. He, he, he always sort of looked down on himself, on his work, uh, at least until Citizen Kane came along. He certainly felt that way about a lot of the stuff he'd written. And he thought of Hollywood as a place where it wasn't a place for serious people to do serious work. It was just a place to get rich. And so that kind of emerges from the movie. It was weird when I saw it. I mean, you know, you hear about him all your life. And then all of a sudden there he is in the living room. Uh, so that was kind of surreal. I had to pause it a couple of times and just think about that. I mean, I, he'd be astonished, I think, that anybody was making a movie about his life since he felt so sort of useless and insignificant in some ways. Um, I'm sorry my dad wasn't around to see it. My, uh, uh, my dad and, and, and his father, Herman, they were, they were pretty close. And uh, uh, my dad would have gotten a huge kick out of this. Um, is storytelling passed down from... One generation to well, another. If you'll, if you'll allow me, Josh, let me give your dad's thumbnail also, because sure. there's obviously we don't want to say that this skipped a generation by any means, uh, no. because your father was uh, a preeminent journalist himself. He worked as uh, Bobby Kennedy's pr uh, press secretary, was uh, in charge of national public radio, uh, had an incredible career that was worthy of an autobiography, um, a, a book that people would care to read, which is, I think, a, a mark of a, a life well lived. Um, and then, of course, I don't want to leave out your uh, your grandfather's brother, Joseph Mankiewicz, uh, 10 Oscar nominations, four wins, uh, most notably uh, All About Eve. So and your brother, Ben Mankiewicz, uh, who works for uh, for Turner and uh, is, is prominent there. So it seems as though your family is saturated with the ability to tell a story. Well, you know, you're uh, you're leaving out my uh, my uh, cousin Tom, no longer with us, who wrote a bunch of the Bond movies um, and, uh, and and the first couple of Superman films. Um, uh, my cousin John, who um, uh, worked on uh, was one of the executive producers of House of Cards and then later Bosch on uh, on Amazon, and has gone on to a bunch of other things. I think he also worked on Miami Vice back in the 80s. So, I mean, yeah, there are a lot of people in my family who are, um, who've been in the movie business. My, my brother and I sort of ended up more in journalism because my dad had been less in movies and more in journalism. And I think that is sort of descended from Herman's uh, distaste of the movie business. I mean, I think that my dad went into journalism, I think in part because Herman, his father, did not think of movies as a, as a, as a good place to work. And, and he certainly admired journalists. Herman had been a journalist. Um, there's a great book uh, that, that came out uh, more than a year ago called the brothers Manko. It's about Herman and Joe, about their, their sort of differing and competing Hollywood careers. Um, and one of the things that revealed to me, because I, I thought I knew a fair amount about my family, but I didn't know this is that I'm a fourth generation journalist being my, uh, I'm a journalist. My dad was a journalist. Uh, Herman was a journalist before he came out here to write movies. He was a newspaper reporter and critic in New York City. He was one of the drama critics in the New York Times at one point. And his father, uh, Franz, later Frank, uh, published a, a German-English newspaper in Pennsylvania where the Mankiewiczs settled after arriving here from Germany and Poland and, uh, and, and doing some coal mining. Um, he became a... Um, uh, he became a, a newspaper publisher there and then later an educator himself. So 
uh, you know, I, it's not for me to say whether that's in the genes or not. I know that that was always, you know, journalism was always sort of held up as an honorable profession in our family. And so that might have something to do with it. Um, you know, uh, telling a story is certainly an essential part of what journalists do. And it's a vital part of what happens at Dateline, where I've worked for 26 years, in which stories are not presented uh, like a newspaper article. It does not, our stories do not begin, you know, today John Smith was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of his wife six years ago. That isn't, now, now right. please tune for 59 minutes. And in the we second paragraph, and here's what he's up to today. Right. Yeah, we don't, we're not doing that. No the inverted last, pyramid. The last line of Dateline stories is John Smith was sentenced to life. Good night. That's how, that's how they just, that's how they usually end. Um and so that's a whole other different way of storytelling. I mean, you begin by saying, you know, you know, John and Mary had a, you know, storybook marriage. You know, John and Mary met in high school. It was preordained they were going to get married. Then you tell the story about how happy they were. You interview some people who knew that. And then you talk about how things seemed to change. Things went wrong. Um, and then all of a sudden she's gone. She disappears. Can't find her. What does he do? What does he say? Um, and... That part of the story, that part of the, the, the Dayline story, we, you know, all the true crime that we do, that part of the story is fun. The sort of taking people through the TikTok of the investigation and, and leading them around some corners in which it, you know, certainly looks like this guy's guilty. And then it turns out, well, actually, maybe not, because here's this video of him in a convenience store 30 miles away at the time of the murder. So maybe he's not the guy. That part of it is fun to do. The other part of the story, which is the murder of somebody and the loss to their family and the people that love them, that's not fun. And so when you do Dateline Hours, all of us, all of us who are on Dateline, when we do that, we have to draw a really strong, bright line in between the storytelling, where you can have some fun with the audience, and the story, which is super serious and and you can't try to get any laughs out of it um and that's not always easy to do but when you do it then you have a story that people are both interested in and they also feel from it what they ought to feel which is this is terrible yeah i, I think that you know i'm trying to sometimes uh when i watch dateline um not only look for things that I can use, devices, I'm more of a narrative style journalist myself. I'm not writing briefs or hard news stories or up to the minute type things. I, I do deep dives and I'm constantly looking for things that I can use in my writing and to, to beneficial effect. I think you're able to do that with a narrative style writing where uh, the, the shape of the story isn't that inverted pyramid, but more of a just big rectangle. And if you right. can have great bits of information at the end of the story that you hold back on. Um, so, but I think before I want to get into that, I wanted to, to get into this aspect of, of true crime journalism, because um, there's information that can be introduced uh, in your form or in the narrative form, even in print, that you obviously couldn't introduce into a courtroom um, or that your editor might not allow in a hard news story. So as you went to crime drama, 
what was what was your transformation, I guess, as a journalist to learn some of these devices on 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 the slow roll of information, uh, and also including some things that maybe are a little bit more innuendo or what would in a courtroom be considered hearsay? Well, first of all, when we are when we're doing a story, we're usually thinking early on about what it is that we're not going to disclose. I mean, sometimes it's essential to sort of keeping people in a little bit of suspense throughout the hour. Like if it turns out that the DNA test came back, you know, a week later because they rushed the results and it actually is this guy that, that we now seem to be pointing the finger away from in terms of him having an alibi or something like that, that we might very well hold back. Um, because that has a lot more power after you already think it's not someone than when you don't know who it is. Um, so that kind of thing is a decision that we sort of make early on. Um, but yeah, there's all kinds of things, you know, we're not reenacting a criminal trial when we, when we do Dateline episodes. Look, when we started, when I came to Dateline in 1995, we weren't doing true crime. We were sort of, um, like a faster moving 60 minutes. We did all kind of uh, different stories unrelated to each other within the body of a one hour broadcast. And then about, um, I don't know, about 15 years ago, um, 2005, 2006, I think is when we started doing true crime. We started expanding them to an hour long. Um, and that became the thing that Dateline has known for, and that ended up kind of reinventing us. And, you know, now, I mean, you know, when you, know, you hear people say to their, their friends, don't date that guy, you're going to wind up on Dateline. Like, you know, they don't, they don't say the name of any other show. I mean, we've become sort of iconic. Maybe Maury. Huh? Maybe Maury. You might end yeah, up on Maury. Right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a different warning, I think. Um, uh, and uh, and that's because of the way we tell the stories. That's not just because of the fact that we do the stories, because other people do the stories. But, but we tell them in a way that draws people in. And we spend a lot of time thinking about that. So, you know, for example, um, one of the things you see in this job is this tremendous wave of violence in this country, most of it by men, most of it against women. And much of that within the confines of a relationship. And a lot of it is violence that wouldn't be admissible in a courtroom. It's not on a police blotter. It's not on a hospital sign-in sheet. It never gets reported. Maybe it gets talked about to friends in a kind of hearsay way. Um, some of it is threatened violence, blocking somebody's way so they can't leave the house, taking somebody's car keys, you know, yelling at somebody so loudly that they, they shrink back. Much of that would not be admissible in court, but it's all a vital part of our storytelling. And it tells you a lot, not about the crime, because we're less concerned on Dateline about the crime than we are about the relationship that sort of led up to the crime. I mean, we could we could do only serial killers if we wanted to. We could do all kinds of terribly bloody crimes, which are much worse in, in terms of the violence than the things that 
that, that we do now. But we're not really looking for that. Most people are never going to be the victims of violent crime, which is a good thing. But everybody has been in a relationship that did not work out the way they wanted to. It's that that draws people in a dateline because of the things that people do, often to somebody that they once loved, often to somebody who's the mother or father of their children, uh, when they are seeking to get out of a relationship instead of just leaving, getting a divorce, saying, I, we can't do this anymore. Some people don't want to do that. That's, that's what leads to the kind of stories that we cover. And a lot of that, you're right, wouldn't make it into a courtroom. The other thing you see, in addition to all this violence and the behavior of men, which is frequently shocking, is the belief by women in a lot of cases that, and this is a message that this country has sent repeatedly and wrongly, but repeatedly, that without a man in your life, you don't have any value. So you need to accept the fact that being treated badly is sometimes the price of being in a relationship. Now that's crazy, but we see it all the time. There are people who believe that or who don't act on what they believe. So many Dateline stories involve women who think like, hey, this is, this is ominous, but they put that aside and then they end up being the subject of a Dateline hour. So, I mean, one of the messages when I, when I talk to people, I say, look, if you have the instinct, this is the wrong place for you. This is the wrong guy. This is the wrong relationship. Don't, don't wait to see if you're right or not. Get out. Those kind of things probably wouldn't make it into a courtroom, but they're all integral parts of a Dateline episode. And how did that transformation of going from traditional journalism, as you did, covering wars, everything from wars to high-profile entertainment interviews uh, with actors and musicians and whatever to these types uh, of, of stories that you're telling? Because there, there, there probably was a, tra I'm guessing there was a transition where you had to rewire your brain a little bit. A little bit, but only, <clears throat> I think the big rewiring was involved in telling a story over an hour instead of over seven to eight minutes, which is what we had been doing on Dateline, or sometimes as long as like 10 or 12 minutes, but we rarely did a whole hour on things. And then we started doing crime. We also started doing it much longer form. I actually, when I was a political reporter for most of my career, I was a political reporter at local stations in Washington, DC, in New York City, and then here in Los Angeles. Um, I covered the US House for ABC News. Um, I was on the road on a couple of different presidential campaigns um, when I was a, when I was a correspondent at ABC, um, I, um, I actually don't perceive what we're doing now at Dateline as being terribly different from what you're talking about being traditional journalism. It's longer there. You need to make an effort to make sure just as you as when you're doing a, a an evening news story, that's going to be a minute, 15 seconds. You certainly don't want people, you know, bored and tuning out at 38 seconds in. And you don't want people on Dateline tuning out at 38 minutes in. Um, reporting is reporting. And I don't need to tell you that. And writing is writing. And, 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 and one of the things about Dateline is you get to do sort of more of both of those in an hour. Um, so much of the story that we tell, we try to tell through the back and forth interview. And not, and this is not like a documentary, which is just endlessly me talking over pictures and then somebody popping up to speak. The idea is that, that 
that Keith or Dennis or Andrea or Natalie and, or I are telling this story, you know, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and that you're sort of, the idea is that we're, we hope this is what happens. We're asking the question that the audience wants to be asking at that moment. And we're, you know, we get better at it. We listen to what they think in social media. Um, uh, you know, the idea is you want to challenge everybody in the story and you want the audience to see you challenging everybody in the story, even your sympathetic characters. Um, I mean, obviously you're going to say to the murderer, you know, how do you dispute the DNA evidence? I mean, you were there, right? That's sort of the easy question to ask. The tougher question is to say to family or police or friends, did you make a mistake here? You know, what was the, you know, should you have listened to so-and-so when they said this? Did you dismiss that too quickly? When they called in, when they made this police report, you know, it doesn't seem like you guys did anything. Um, though you have to challenge everybody, not just your sympathetic characters, or not, not or including your sympathetic characters, not just the people that, that the story uh, ends up uh, convicting or the legal system ends up convicting. What's it like for you as the correspondent when this is, I don't want to say the only story you're doing, but there are so many similarities. Obviously, there's drama. It's a whodunit. Uh, some, there's a dead body, you know, 99 times out of 100. Um, does it ever, um, I guess, how often do you find yourself fighting to tell a different story, even though there are so many nuances? Each story is different especially for the viewer who tunes in once a week. But as the correspondent, this is your life. You go from story to story to story. Um, and there are these threads of heartbreak. And uh, I guess what, what's, what's it like for you to make sure that each story gets its own, gets its own uh, just due? Well, first of all, there's a big crowd of people that, that you don't see that make sure of that at Dateline. Um, I mean, every, these are not just my stories. It's a very collaborative process. I mean, every story that I'm working on has a, a producer who works on it with me and a senior producer is like an editor. And then there's a layer of management above that that checks it out for all kinds of legal fairness issues, uh, uh, rights issues involving the video or music that might be in it. And then sort of the overall message of the story and whether or not it's getting through. The, you know, the really hard part of this story is what you just alluded to, which is it, it is a steady diet. Or the, the hard part of this job is, is what you're alluding to here, which is this job involves a, a very consistent diet of hearing other people's heartbreak. And that's going to be hard for any journalist. And you obviously have to draw some kind of line between, you know, like when people start, you're interviewing, people start crying, you, you know, I think... Most journalists would agree you're not to start. You're not supposed to start breaking down along with them. On the other hand, you also can't feel nothing. You also can't be in a position in which you're like, hey, 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 come on, we got a story to do here. Try to compose yourself. You can't do that either, you know. So, so, and that's the hard part of this job is is hearing these stories that people are telling because in many cases this is the only time that story is going to get told in any significant length. Most of the people we do stories about, the, the, the victims, they're not famous. They're not getting written up in the New York Times. They're not even being mentioned. 
in a lot of newspapers. Maybe there'll be a little thing in the hometown newspaper. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe if it's a cold case, maybe if it goes on and on and on, maybe there'll be some coverage. But in a lot of cases, these are, these are stories that, that, that don't get a lot of coverage. Then they might be mentioned a little bit on the local six o'clock news, but it's a huge obligation to do that story for that family and that and 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 whatever law enforcement agency was ever was finally able to sort of bring all this to a close in some cases you're the only one sort of telling that and you've got to get it right and you've got to give everybody in it their due the victim and the family and the friends and the defendant particularly if there's some issue as to their guilt which frequently there there is uh, the hard part of this is talking to the families. It's not interviewing people who are accused of murder. By the time they're sitting across from us, they are on their best behavior and their message is always the same, which is, I, I, this is not me. This is a mistake. I could not have done this. They have it all. There's a big conspiracy against me or, you know, everybody's wrong. I, I didn't do it. Okay, I'll let, them, I'll let them say that. I mean, they get to say that, but they also get you know, they get challenged on that. We all will challenge them. So that, that is the hard part of this, is the, the obligation to tell these stories in what's an entertaining or interesting way for the audience that doesn't know anything about this and wasn't part of it, and also a kind of an honorable and truthful way for the people who are part of it. Is there a way, and hopefully this isn't too uh, unwieldy, is there a way you can give a... Um bullet points on when you first dive into your next assignment uh, and what the chain of command is or the, uh, the order in which it rolls out as producers hit the ground or they start, you know, sure. doing scenics or how, however, because that's another thing about Dateline that's always impressive, especially with yours and Keith's uh, pieces, I've, I notice is that the location is almost a character. Uh, with your pieces as much as a human being is. Uh, but any, I don't want to bog it down with that. But I know it's a huge, a, a huge undertaking. And as you've already mentioned, so many people are involved. Uh, but what's the, what's the quick rundown? Well, first of all, there's a tremendous amount of spade work that happens before anybody gets on an airplane. Um, I mean, we hear about stories in a lot of different ways. Sometimes we read them in the newspaper. We read the papers all over the country all the time. Uh, and we have the country divided up into different zones and different producers in New York and people in New York are responsible for, you know, like I'm sure there's one guy who like just reads the papers in Florida, right? And that would kind of give you a- You might need three. Of what life is like, right? <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, uh, there is a, you know, we, we see stuff happen in the newspaper. Now, obviously when something happens in the newspaper, when you see a, a murder has happened, or even if it's not a murder, someone is missing and it looks like nobody knows what happened to them. We have no idea that's going to come out. They could be found the next day, or it could be a murder, but it could be solved like essentially instantly, which means we're probably not going to end up doing it. Um, but uh, we start making phone calls right away and we hear about something. We also hear about stories now that we've been doing this for so long. We hear about stories from uh, police departments, from prosecutors, uh, from local TV stations, from newspapers, people we've dealt with in the past. And also just people who have appeared on Dateline in the past. Um, 
people who were maybe you know uh, uh, friends of a, of a of a victim from a story we did five years ago those people stay in touch with us because i hope in part they felt like you know dateline dealt with their with the story they were involved in fairly and accurately and now they've heard of something else that happened in their hometown and they call us we have a bunch of people like that so once we start making calls we try to contact everybody in the story um if there's somebody who's a defendant or who looks like they might become a defendant we'll try and contact them or their attorney sort of before they're in custody i mean if we could get an interview with them we might do that ahead of when any charges are filed if that's possible Frequently, police and prosecutors will not speak with you until the case is fully adjudicated. So you have to kind of wait sometimes for a verdict before you can go down that road and talk to them. And you want to talk to them because you want to you want that 911 call and you want some of the crime scene stuff that we can actually show. Some of it we can't, but some of it we can. And we want the TikTok of how the investigation progressed. And you usually can't get that until the whole thing's over. But victim family, victims' friends. Uh, people who were aware of what was going on in whatever this relationship, friends of the accused or the person who's a suspect, attorneys, I mean, uh, defense attorneys, all of that's, those interviews are all available early on. Um, sometimes you want to wait a little bit and see sort of what's happening before you interview, you know, a defense attorney. You want to find out, well, we think they're going to file charges. Let's wait until they've actually charged this guy before we interview him. But we do that. There's a, there are associate producers who go out there first um, meet with some of the people involved, find out, first of all, whether they want to talk. I mean, we don't have any subpoena power. The only reason people are on Dateline is because they want to be on Dateline. And if they don't want to be on Dateline, I mean, we've lost stories because people either wanted to get paid, which we won't do, or they just didn't want to tell this story to us on television. Uh, and when that happens, if enough people don't want to participate, we're probably not going to do it. If we can't get anybody who knew the victim, if we can't get their family or friends, um, that makes it a very difficult story to do. I'm not saying we would never do it, but it makes it a lot harder. Um, when people want to get paid, that's kind of a, a you know breaking off point. Uh, we we can't we can't do that. So that sort of begins, and we find out you know sort of what the schedule of things is going to be. If someone's been charged, then when's the trial going to be? We generally like to wait until. Things are over so that we can say at the end, as we were talking about earlier, you know, Bill was convicted. He's doing life. Good night. Or Bill was acquitted, whatever. But you want the ending. The audience likes an ending. We've tried to do cold cases before uh, with varying success. Um, I like doing them because it, 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 it sometimes helps law enforcement bring something to an end. It might provide some answers for, for families, which is a great thing. The audience don't like it so much because our story ends by saying, you know, who killed so-and-so? Police don't know. They need your help. Good night. Audience don't like that. They like, they like knowing. What's so, the longest you've worked on a story because it didn't have the ending? You were, it kept, whether it be through appeals or the court process or what have you? Uh, several years. Uh, like like six, seven years. I, I, I did a story here in uh, California in which I had interviewed a woman who was a suspect in a, sort of an after-the-fact suspect in a, in a murder case. She hadn't been charged. Uh, her boyfriend had been charged. A very long time, a uh, very long period of time went, went by before 
uh, he was eventually um, um, tried and, and convicted. And then years more went by. She changed attorneys a couple of times. And uh, maybe the, uh, the prosecutor's office might have changed um, DAs. Somebody won or lost an election. Anyway, like six or seven years, I think, passed in between when I did the interview with her and when she eventually did get prosecuted for that crime. And I, by the time we, by the time we were sitting down to do the story, I remember sitting to the producer did I ask her about any of the stuff that's coming up in this trial? Like, I, I remember that I interviewed her, but I don't remember what, it, and, and producer was like, we got it. The issues didn't change where it's all, but the, 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 the questions that were the questions seven years ago are still the questions now. So we ended up running, but that happens. I mean, we did a story. I, I wasn't personally involved in this, but Dayline did a story uh, that aired uh, five hours over three nights earlier this year called The Widower, which was about a guy um, in Las Vegas uh, who'd been married six times and four of his wives had died. And, and we started gathering material on that. Our producer, Dan Slepian, uh, who masterminded that project and followed it all the way through. I think he started on that like 13 years earlier. And he had interviews with this guy over 13 years. I think I think that's the right number of years, but it, it was more than it was more than ten years. And when she sort of followed this guy along as as these different court cases progressed all the way to the end, uh, and it was a, um, uh, it's a it was an amazing story. And and we do that. I mean, Dateline's big enough that we can we can do that. We we hang on for a long time because frequently, you know, we go out, we gather stuff, we talk to the people who are willing to talk. We wait for the trial. Then the trial gets put off. Um, and then it's another six months. And meanwhile, I'm working on other stuff. And then we do some more things and the trial gets put off again. And then, a, then there is a trial, but it's a mistrial. So now you're waiting, you know, eight, nine more months or a year for the next trial to happen. Uh, and then it finally does. And we're still there. We're, 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 we're waiting and we've got a lot of stuff now. And so if it's long enough, if there were a couple of trials, you know, that can be not just one hour, but two hours, which we prefer. How many interviews or how much of the interviewing do you actually do? Uh, upwards of 90%. I mean, every now and then there are interviews that are done just by producers, which are more sort of informational interviews. Like you interview the guy that found the body, for example. You know, he was out jogging and he saw a body. There's not a lot for me to ask him. There's no challenging to be done that. He's just telling the story of, you know, I go for a run every day at 630 in the morning. And this time I saw somebody lying next to the path. I thought they were asleep. I bent down. I realized they were dead. I called 911. You don't really need me in the middle of that narrative. So those kind of interviews, I, I, I don't always do. But sometimes I do. It depends. Um, but yeah, I mean, all the significant interviews, the ideas, the correspondence involved in. And then we're also, you know, deeply involved in writing the script because it's supposed to be, you know, the idea is a Keith story and a Josh story are not supposed to sound the same. And they don't. Right. I, I don't want to, hopefully this isn't a trigger word because I'm, I'm, I'm using it more as, uh, I don't want to say the word crutched. That's the trigger word. Um, is there a template you find yourself relying on with these stories? Um, because, but a, a template also can be construed as, you know, not giving it original. But you, you have to go from story to story and you have to, 
you need I mean, whatever it is device yeah. uh, I mean, process a, to complete this. There is no, um, there is no dateline template that you can't veer outside of. Okay, I mean, you can make the argument to our bosses in New York that, you know, we need to do this and this and this. But I mean, generally our hours begin or two hours begin with, you know, someone either vanishing or, or being found dead. And then the investigation follows from that. And while you're doing the investigation, you're sort of simultaneously learning about the person uh, who's, uh, who's deceased. And then you're learning about the suspects and then you're learning about the relationship that the suspects had with that person, that can change in many ways. But generally, at some point, it's kind of right down the middle of the fairway, you know, who will, it, 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 which is the same formula that's, you know, launched a thousand police novels over the years. You know, I mean, who, who, who died, who profited from their death or who didn't like them or who wanted them dead, um, uh, who suffers because they're dead and what are you doing uh, to, to, to bring this to some sort of informational close? Um, you know, we, um, or I talk to the audience a lot on social media. And, uh, and so I was, I was on Twitter and somebody during one of our dateline hours, we're usually live on, on Twitter when, when, when the broadcast is on the air, at least in the East and central time zones. Uh, and somebody said to us, you know, I've noticed that the first guy you show us is never the guy. Um, and, uh, and I thought about that a little bit. Um, uh, and I realized that they were right. But frequently on Dateline, the first person that we bring up as a possible suspect or person of interest ends up not being the, the, the guilty party. So I immediately wrote one in which the first guy I showed you was the guy. And then we circled away from him and then came back in, in the narrative later. Um, and nobody at Dayline said, don't do that. Uh, so, I mean, there are certain liberties that can be taken in the interest of telling a good story, which is the, which, you know, is kind of where we came in. And it's also kind of the thing that we, that we care most about along with the, you know, basics of journalism. Are we correct? Are we fair? Are we accurate? And are we telling a story that maybe people can't guess in the first minute? Are we telling a story that draws people in and makes them think about some of the issues involved here and not just who killed this person? How acceptable in true crime drama do you think it is for, uh, for there to be red herrings? Well, uh, I love a good red herring. And it certainly makes any story more interesting to tell. I mean, uh, I, I did a story a couple of years ago um, um, outside of Cleveland in which a woman disappeared. She's subsequently found uh, dead in her car. Um, she, had, she was wearing clothes that didn't belong to her. And she had not been killed in those clothes because although she'd been shot, the t-shirt she was wearing didn't have any holes in it. Uh, in the car with her was a letter to her, which she had received sometime before she died, obviously. And she had 
just started dating um, a woman. One of the things, she'd been involved with men, but now had just begun uh, her first relationship with a woman. And one of the things the police noticed, in addition to the fact that she was found in the trunk of her car, but she clearly hadn't been killed there, and she also was wearing clothes that, that she wasn't wearing when she was killed, um, was that her hair had been very weirdly chopped off in a, in a maybe post-mortem, but, but not, I mean, this was not anybody who, 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 who this was not for cosmetic reasons. This was clearly done by the killer. And they were trying to figure out, is this a, you know, is this somebody taking a souvenir or, or why would some, why would the killer spend time at, you know, cutting, cutting this woman's hair? Um, very crudely after, uh, after her death. And so then they find her body and, and in the car is this letter. And the letter is from this woman that she has recently uh, been involved with and she's going out with. Um, and the, it's a letter of apology. I'm sorry, we're not getting along and I'm gonna try to you know, get along better. And we're having too much drama. And it turns out that the dead woman and her girlfriend uh, had just had a huge argument, which I think had broken them up. And the argument was about the dead woman's haircut, which, which she had recently gotten a new hairdo and her girlfriend hadn't appreciated it. And they had a huge fight about her hair. Okay. So I put that in about the haircut and the letter uh, and, and her getting her haircut. Um, uh, I put the stuff in about, about, about her, her crude haircut early on when the body's found. Then about 40 minutes in, I put in this letter and the fact that they the, the, that they'd had this huge fight about about her her hairdo. Okay, so now if you're watching Dateline, you're like, okay, well now we know who it is, right? That's it's <laughs> it's clearly the girlfriend who they had a fight about it, and then it went off the rails, and and that ended up in this woman's death. No, not the girlfriend, not involved, and it had nothing to do with her haircut. Um, the uh, but that was a great red hair, and then that definitely kept everybody sort of, sort of you know, riveted to their TV screens while this was playing out. And that was an important part of the thing. It turned out the killer had cut the woman's hair, uh, because he thought there might be evidence in it, because he was, you know, he'd seen a lot of shows about uh, about uh, uh, DNA and thought, oh, I've got a, I've got a, I've got a. Uh, clean up the scene. So I'm going to do whatever I can to take away the piece of evidence that might contain some evidence uh, th that would implicate me. Um, I think he forgot to check under her fingernails. So he, he watched, uh, you know, he watched those shows, but not closely enough, but that was a great red herring because it's certainly from that, it, it, it appeared clearly that it was going to be one person. And we didn't say that we just mentioned, by the way, they had a fight about her haircut and, and then it, it turned out that had absolutely nothing to do with it. And that's a terrific red herring, 100% factual and truthful, and makes you, makes you wonder sort of about where you're going in the story. And then and it's it made the police that. wonder. It's not as though it was, it's not as though that bit of information was dismissed uh, at the scene of the crime. Obviously, that was something that the police had to have focused on for oh, at sure, least a little sure. bit. We, so you're not being thought. disingenuous by bringing no, it in. 
Oh no, we don't look. I mean, we're we're ultimately married to the truth in all these stories. We can't say, you know, Tim was a suspect if he wasn't a suspect. You know, if you were a suspect for a day or a couple of hours, that's one thing. But if you were not a suspect, we're not going to say that you were, and our legal team would not let us say that you were. Uh, so we are we 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 hew pretty closely to the to to what the investigation did and did not consider. And if they, if they rule out so-and-so pretty quickly, we're going to say that. Yeah. And, and the viewer would not give you that many opportunities for that type of shenanigan either. Uh, you no, could, you can't, you can't make things up you know, you on CSI. That's one thing, but on right. your show, oh. you, you, they would stop tuning in. No, look, it would be great. I mean, you know, we all laugh about this. I mean, look, if we could make people say whatever they wanted, you know, it'd be a different world out there. <laughs> but we can't and we don't. Um, both literally we can't do it and ethically we can't do it. I mean, they've got to, you know, people are talking about a real thing that happened and, and we press them on the details to make sure that what they're saying is even if it's not 100% true, it's at least true that they believe that. But we don't tell anybody what to say, ever. A couple more questions, if, you, if you'll allow it. Hopefully, uh, if we're not interrupting too much here on your day. See, I'm used to saying we. I, again, I have to remind everybody I'm friendless. Your imaginary friends. Yes. Yeah. You and um, yeah. <laughs> um, How do you, is, what's the art to emphasizing the twist? Or, and is it just as, is it, I guess I'll leave it at, uh, leave it at that. Although my, I guess, all right, I'm, this is a very terrible way of forming this question. I have two things in my head. One, the twist, but also the commercial break. And I, there's a difference there um, of just the, of the cliffhanger versus the, the dramatic twist. But is there a, is there a tried and true method to this? Of, of or identifying when you're looking at a story, this is going to be where I mean, we every yes, yeah, sometimes. I mean, for example, when I when we started on this story that I was just telling you about in in, uh, in the area outside Cleveland, and I heard about the fact that they'd had a fight about. I read about this in, in one of the newspaper articles about the case. When I realized that they had had a fight about her haircut, and then her hair ended up getting cut um, post mortem, like that's that screams out to be the 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 twist that you think you understand and then turns out you're completely wrong about um so yeah then i know that that's going to go into the back half of the story we're not going to give that away earlier but uh you know every dateline episode or nearly every dateline episode is six separate acts with commercials in between and there's obviously some rules set down by the network which we can't change that they have to those those, those acts have to end at certain times. Like, like you can't have a 27 minute act followed by a two minute act. Like you've got to be like, they got to be certain times where the network has to get on for, for network ID or station ID and local news stations, you know, at, at 10 30 or at 10 50 or whatever it is, want to be able to do a little news break for their late local news. I mean, so there's certain rules that we have to adhere to. And sometimes the ending of a Dateline episode allows you to put in some sort of cliffhanger or twist or allude to something that maybe you're only being really allowed to do by the fact that you're going to go off and do a commercial for a couple of minutes and then come back. So sometimes it's nothing more than like, you know, and then they got a phone call 
you know, who was it calling, right? We'll know when we come back, right? You come back and it's like, well, it turns out that was a wrong number, you know, because, you know, you, you had to end and then you had to begin again. Um, what I've tried to get away from doing is that, that annoying recap that, that we used to do. Just you takes know. up more time. You know, yeah, which from, from the storytelling that you really want to do, you come back from a break and you have to say like, yeah, remember you went to work today and then you came home and then you're watching TV and it was Dateline and we were up to this point in the story. Like ah, most people, I think, remember, you know, sort of what was happening. So if you can do that in one line, you know, you know, police were investigating the murder of John Smith, you know, that's it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there's no question that like the, the landscape of an hour with those commercial breaks, like that's not something we can change. That's the way television operates. And, and, and we don't, we, we can't really disrupt that. That's sort of the rules that we have to live under 99% of the time. So you have to be aware that, you know, when we sit down before we start writing and editing anything and we sort of lay out the story in six parts so the part one is, you know, you're going to learn about this person and you're going to find out that they're missing. And then part two, you're going to learn some things about them uh, and their relationship and the investigation is going to begin. And then part three, you know, they have their first suspect. And then part four, they have the next suspect. Or then part five, they figure out who it is and they go to trial. And the question is going to be, is that person going to get away with it? Or maybe they don't have the right guy. And then part six, it, it, it gets wrapped up. Um, that's not an uncommon template, but of course, you know, sometimes there isn't a trial or sometimes we can't get into the trial and there won't, they won't allow cameras in there. So then that part of the story becomes significantly condensed, you know, and it just says, you know, you just see somebody walking into a courthouse and then they come out, you know, they're, they're handcuffed or they're not. And you say, you know, after a you know, nine day trial, so-and-so was convicted or so-and-so was acquitted. If, if we have the courtroom footage and we can get in there and shoot it, or if somebody else gets in there and shoots it, that's great. But sometimes that's not possible, in which case that part of the storytelling has to be somewhat condensed. How much work goes into the interview with the defendant, accused, convicted, you know, the, the bad guy, the bad person, and yeah. not tipping off whether or not they are wearing a jumpsuit uh, oh. You can tell by the cinder block behind them where they are, or, you know, there's a lot of times when you can look and say that guy's clearly wearing, you know, a work, you know, a work outfit. Look, uh, if we, can, if we can interview people before they're in custody um, or maybe they're out of custody on bail, you know, pending trial sometimes um, uh, that's always a big help because then you can sort of, you're not saying to the audience, this person is locked up. It depends. You asked about preparation. There's a tremendous amount of preparation in every interview, um, both in how it's going to look and in what I'm going to ask them and sort of how we're going to go through the narrative of what, what's happened to them and their perception of this case that they're involved in or this person that they know. When it's the defendant or the accused, then there's the whole issue of sort of what's behind that and whether or not it looks like they're locked up. So we definitely jump through some hoops to try to disguise that to people if we can. Sometimes some correctional institutions, they're like, nope, you're doing the interview here in front of the cinder block wall and they're wearing an orange jumpsuit because that's what everybody here wears and you have them for an hour and that's it. And then that somewhat 
constrains how we present that person during the hour. Um, we're obviously not going to interview them in the first five minutes showing that they're in custody. Some places, and it depends, some are, you know, some are state run, some are private prisons, some are local municipalities, local lockups. Um, sometimes they will let you put clothing on the person that you're interviewing as long as they're still in their lock and key, which they always are. And there's usually a couple of corrections officers, you know, just off camera here. So, you know, we, uh, I was interviewing a guy in, um, I think in, uh, in Cincinnati and, uh, and he was wearing a coverall, but he had a white t-shirt on under it. And the, the, the prison let us pull his coverall, take the top part of his coverall down to his waist. So now he's just sort of wearing the bottom part of it, the pants. And now he's just wearing a white t-shirt up on top. And we'd gone to Banana Republic that day and we buy like a extra large dress shirt and we put him in that. So now it's a white t-shirt with a blue striped dress shirt. And we put a couple of candles behind him uh, in the, in this room in the, in the prison where we're interviewing him. And of course now it looks like the guy's in his den. So, and I see this, you know, on social media, as we're going through the hour, people say, well, it looks like it's this guy, but it obviously can't because he's can't be because he's, he's home when he's being interviewed. And then that in itself becomes a kind of a storytelling twist later on, you pull back and you realize, you know, and we have the cameras, we, we make sure the crews shoot this at some point, like the, you know, the camera pulls back and you realize one, he's shackled and two, it's not his home. And I, I, we mentioned it earlier and I, I wanted to get your thoughts on it because I do think it's a, and it's gotten increasingly more impressive uh, as the years have gone on, the way that Dateline will use the location as a character right. almost usually, and especially uh, in the Southwest or the West. Um, but these, these bucolic settings that get and the and the drones obviously help with, with able, you know, that, to get that, the that shots. Change a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, it's super expensive to hire a helicopter, which we used to have to do. And now many of our uh, producers, like, you know, have drones and, and have licenses to operate them. And we, there's also all kinds of uh, now laws and rules about where you can and can't use one, you know, not near a school and not over certain kinds of buildings or in certain airspaces. And, um, but still, we're able to, you know, usually work within all of that to make sure that we get pictures that, that help. Does all that influence that, your writing? Excuse me? When you're doing the script, does that influence your writing that you know sure. you have this? For sure. You know, we, yeah. we want to, we, we know all that. We're, we're, frequently, we, we try to figure out what, you know, what we don't, we don't, it's better if we can write the script and then figure out the pictures that go to that as opposed to go and shoot for a week and then realize, oh, I have this, so I have to talk about the old mill because we have all these pictures of the old mill. So, you know, it's 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 better if if the if the people writing the script, which is usually me and the producer and the crew, all sort of work together, and the editor, on the video editor, on what on how to tell the story and to what extent the locale is going to be part of the story, because frequently it is. Like if it's a small town where everybody knows everybody, well, you're going to want to show that. You know, or if it's a big impersonal urban area, you're going to want to show that too. If the person's found in this forest on the edge of town. You know, a drone is a great way to sort of get up above that and take some 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 sort of 
loving pictures of that area in which you sort of get a sense for, you know, how big it is and how hard it would be to find anybody who was lost in there. And all of that is something that, you know, supposedly the, the, the videotape editor and the producer and the camera people and the, and, and the correspondent are all, are all working together along with the producer in charge of the story. Wrap it up in a bow with this question, however you want to answer it. What's your favorite part of storytelling? Um, I, uh, I do like leading people around corners. The hardest part of Dateline is a story in which the obvious suspect ends up being the guilty party. You know, so-and-so is arrested for killing their wife and he's got blood all over him and he doesn't remember where he was and he doesn't have an alibi and it looks like he's he's a you know slam dunk in court well if it is him that's a tough story to tell if it's not him then you've got a great story to tell so when my favorite part of storytelling is when the elements point in different ways and like an episode of law and order you know, it seems clear it's this guy. No, wait, it's this guy. Oh, wait, she was having an affair. Oh, no, it's the next door neighbor. That's, you know, when you, when you can keep the audience guessing all the way through and still tell a true story, an accurate story, and a compelling story, then you've done a good job. Josh Mankiewicz, thanks for dropping by in a day I had no friends. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's I'll be very nice of you to do this. And uh, I guess I, I, I want to mention this for posterity. 100 hours a week, Dateline is on somewhere in the United States on yeah, all the different I mean, networks. New episodes, Fridays at 9 or 10 on the East Coast or 8 or 9 uh, in, um, in the Midwest. Um, but there's all these repeats that air on all these other channels. Yes. And of course, now there's the Peacock streaming app, in which has like zillions of hours of Dateline. On this. There's a Dateline 24-7 channel on Peacock that people can go to. Yeah, it's airing. Like oh, I didn't realize that. Well, then it's way more than a hundred hours. It's yeah, 24, no, no, it's, it's, twenty-four times seven is. And you can, you can, and we're loading new episodes in there all the time. I think. Um, so yeah, there's all. In fact, you know, the funny thing is when people walk up to me in an airport and say, "Oh, I was watching this episode. I saw you the other night. It's a story of this and this. And they want to talk about that." They're never talking about the one that aired new last Friday. They're always talking about something they saw. In a, in a repeat or or streaming they hold up they do they do Except i'm for glad the fashion. They uh josh mankiewicz thanks for doing this uh, very kind thank of you, you. i'm Great. grateful thank you tim graham and friends is brought to you by ctbk cpas and business consultants CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in amherst new york CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions. CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. CTBK. Over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond.